0: Please remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text. Give your ear again to God's holy word. From Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes. And will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I live on in the flesh, This will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our salvation in life and we thank you for your word before us today. We pray that as we consider it that you would work by your spirit in us to transform us to be like you. In your name, amen. amen. Please be seated. The Heidelberg Catechism famously opens by asking, What is your only comfort in life and in death? With the answer being, some know it, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting the question asks about our only comfort? I mean, it's not difficult to think of any number of things that we might turn to for comfort in this life. But the Catechism states that our only true comfort, the only true comfort of the Christian, is belonging to Christ, having Christ himself. And the letter that we have before us today certainly serves as an example of that truth. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians from prison those many years ago, he had none of the things that we might normally turn to for comfort. He had no possessions. He had no freedom. He had no reputation. He had no just treatment. But he had plenty of joy. He tells the Philippians that he makes his prayers for them with great joy. And even if he is to die a martyr's death, that they should rejoice With him. He tells him to rejoice always. Again, he says, rejoice. Paul had none of the things that we have comfort in. And how did he have such joy? What did he have joy in? In verse 18, he tells us. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Christ was everything to Paul. And if Christ was preached, he would rejoice. You'll remember... A number of weeks ago, when we looked at verses 12 through 18, Paul was considering his prospects in prison. The Philippians had written, or had sent Epaphroditus to him, to find out how it would go with Paul, what were his conditions in prison, and what were his prospects for release. And his reply to the Philippians shows us the thoughts of a man whose all-consuming desire, his only comfort, the catechism might say, is Christ. He told them that his imprisonment, his chains, his suffering, had actually served to further the gospel. You remember he talked about how his chains had carried the gospel not only to the praetorian guard, but even into Caesar's household itself. That the believers in Rome were emboldened to speak the word without fear because of his imprisonment. And even if the motives of all the preachers were not pure, he would rejoice in that Christ was preached. And our text today is, He turns to consider his prospects for release. It it brings up for Paul what he considers a dilemma, his choice as he calls it, concerning which legal outcome he should request as he approaches the Lord in prayer. Which outcome should Paul prefer as he prays to the Lord, ongoing life or imminent death? Paul knows that the Lord Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth and his Trial, His outcome before Caesar is in Christ's hand, but he doesn't know what he should prefer. The first answer in the catechism ends by saying, Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him. Our text today, Paul gives us an apostolic model Of this entire answer. Someone who is fully and wholly relying on the supply of the Spirit, willing and ready to live for Christ even if it means intense suffering and who is so assured of his eternal life with Christ that he counts death gain. He invites the Philippians and us to observe his inner wrestlings with life or death possibilities, not only to calm their concerns for him, but in order that we might grasp the truth of what we have in Jesus Christ, so that we would be free from the fear of death, so that we would be free to live lives that magnify the Lord Jesus. So let's consider our verses for today. When Paul says that he will rejoice because he knows that it will turn out for his deliverance, in verse 19 he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And the word that Paul uses is the normal New Testament word for salvation. It's a comprehensive word. And his, his confidence is surprising, given that the verdict that Caesar would hand down is not certain. I mean, this is one of the reasons that the Philippians even sent Epaphroditus to him, was to find out how his trial might go. How then can Paul be so confident that he'll be delivered? What does he, what does he mean by that? We might think this deliverance is in reference to what he clearly expects at the end of the paragraph, that he will be released from prison. Maybe that's what he means, that he's confident that through their prayers, his verdict will go well, he'll be vindicated. But look at, like how, look at how he describes this deliverance in verse 20. Read it with me. He says that he will be, he's confident that he will be delivered according to or in line with My earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. The salvation, the deliverance that Paul is looking forward to very explicitly in verse 20 is that he would not be ashamed, but that he would preach Christ with boldness in Rome when his opportunity came. And the salvation that he expects must be so large and so comprehensive that it can encompass the outcomes of both life and death. The salvation that Paul is looking to is ultimate salvation, total salvation. And this is how he uses this word in in all of his other epistles. He says that the Holy Spirit has saved us by grace and made us new in Christ, that we look forward to being saved from the wrath of God, for example, in the book of Romans. Another clue to his meaning is that verse 19 is quoting the Greek version of Job 13, 16, which we read just a moment ago. You'll remember that despite their accusations, the accusations of his friends, Job maintained both his innocence and that he would be delivered by God. He says, though he, though God slay me. Though I die, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face, and this will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my salvation. Same word in Greek. Like Job, Paul faced an ordeal that very well could have ended in his death. And like Job, Paul is confident that whatever earthly outcome of his trial, his salvation before God's heavenly tribunal is secure. He expects deliverance, in other words, even if he dies. Paul expects deliverance from anything that would keep him from proclaiming Christ boldly so that he would be unashamed on that last day. Now Paul writes about his salvation, about his deliverance in the way that he does because he wants us to know that God does not fail to keep his word. God does not fail to keep his word even or especially if our circumstances are poor. God does not fail to keep his word, even or especially if we lose our possessions. God does not fail to save us, even or especially if we lose our freedoms. God does not fail to save us if we lose our lives. The salvation that Paul is looking forward to here encompasses life and death. All else that we might rely on in this world, will collapse in a moment of crisis, but God never fails, he never shames, in other words, those who trust in him through the Lord Jesus. Both Paul and Peter applied Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen to Christ, calling him the cornerstone that God would set in Zion, promising that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those who believe in Jesus on the last and final day will not have their hopes dashed. Those of you who believe in Jesus on the last day will be vindicated before God, even if we die. Those who trust in Jesus will not be ashamed because Jesus never fails. But those who put their trust in anything else will see their hopes crumble eventually. Paul knew this. And Paul knew that God would grant him this great, this ultimate, complete salvation, but he also knew that God uses means to accomplish His Word. Look again with me at 19. He says, I know that this will turn out for my salvation, my deliverance, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. God would supply the Spirit of Christ to Paul and impart courage to him. God would flood Paul's heart with the Spirit's power, he says in 19, through your prayers. Just as Paul had prayed for the Philippians to grow in love, so he needed their prayers to conduct himself to bring credit to the Lord. Commenting on this verse, John Calvin memorably says that he who depends for help on the prayers of the saints relies on the promise of God the promised Holy Spirit of God. He who depends on the help of the prayers of the saints relies on the promise of God. Paul knew this. During this very same imprisonment in Rome, he wrote to the church at Ephesus, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Paul knew that his battle was spiritual. Paul knew that his battle was eternal. And so what does he ask for? He asks for prayer. In Ephesians six nineteen and 20, he says, Ephesians, pray for me that I might boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He who depends on the help of the prayers of the saints relies on the promise of God, I want to exhort you all today to spend time regularly and fervently praying for the growth and perseverance and progress of the saints in this room, of the Church of Jesus Christ all over this country, all over this world. Pray for one another. Our growth as a church, our salvation, our sanctification depends on us praying for one another, that God would supply us the Spirit of Jesus. Really, there is no better way for you to contribute to the growth and the health of this church and the salvation of the people in this room, other than to spend time before God interceding for their spiritual vitality and our witness. This is what Paul requested prayer for. This is what was topmost in his mind as Paul considered his impending trial with Caesar. He viewed it through the lens of a spiritual battle, and he requested from the Philippians prayer. He knew that their prayers would uphold him. And he asked that Christ would be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. This is what Paul's great aim was. This is what he wanted them to to support him in prayer to do, was to magnify Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. The Christ who had given himself for Paul, who had met him on the road to Damascus and freed him from the tyranny of sin, might be made large, might be magnified in his body. This was the thing. This was the only thing, the only care for Paul. The illustration is often used maybe overused, but it is a good one that the believer in Jesus is like a lens. The believer in Jesus ought to magnify the Lord the way a telescope magnifies the stars. The stars are much bigger, much larger, much grander than the telescope, and yet it is the telescope that magnifies the stars. It takes that which seems dim and seems distant and brings it close and makes it Present. This is belie- how believers are to magnify the Lord Jesus. In our bodies, in the way that we live, we should make Christ, who seems so distant and so dim to the people around us, we, we need to act to live in such a way as to make him present, as to make him visible, as to make him seem glorious as he is, to be close and seen in our very bodies in the way that we live. That was Paul's hope. That was his great and eager expectation. And in the light of his words that we have here we can't help but ask what is our supreme hope? What is our eager expectation in life? Or to put it another way, what what inhabits your unguarded thoughts? Toward what are you expending your energy? What gets your time? What gets your money? Is it academic achievement, maybe success in your career, a fulfilling marriage, accomplished children, respectful children, all of these are good goals, godly goals even, and they may be consistent with God's plans for us, but if your sights are set no higher than earthbound accomplishments, sooner or later, your hopes will be dashed. Or to use Paul's other way of speaking, from what evil above all do you need salvation? Do you long to escape poverty or illness? Is it loneliness or failure? Any sane person would want to escape such miseries, yet no one should expect a life free of pain and adversity in this world. God has not promised us complete deliverance from the world's woes short of Christ's return at the end of history. On that day, on that great day, when the Savior whom we await appears from heaven, not only will he transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, but he will also create a new heavens and a new earth from which every form of misery, every form of evil will be excluded. In the meantime, though, the salvation that God does give now that Paul knew, that Paul was confident that he would receive through the saints' prayers and through the supply of the Spirit was one of being empowered to magnify Christ in our bodies, whether by life or by death. We must take all of those very good, even godly things that I just mentioned earlier Our families, our jobs, our studies, and we must ask, how can we magnify Christ in them? How can I use my job in such a way as to make Christ present to my co-workers? How can I use my business in such a way as to make Christ visible in my community? How can I speak to my husband or wife in such a way? as to make Christ present to them, to make Christ glorious in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world. This is the salvation that Paul prayed for in the meantime as he waited in confident hope for the coming of our Savior and our ultimate salvation before Him. The only way that we will be able to do this is if by the Spirit's empowerment, we take on the mindset that Paul exhibits in verse 21. The center of our verse is the center of Paul's life. Read it with me, please. For to me, he says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Or even more starkly, Paul says, for to me, to live Christ, and to die, gain. The only way... To magnify Christ in all of your life, to magnify Christ in all that you do, is to know deep in your bones, as Paul tells the Colossians, that Christ is your life. Christ is your life. When Christ died in your place, it is as if you yourself were executed under the just wrath of God's law. Your individual and independent standing before God came mercifully to an end at that moment, and you entered into a new identity, into a new power. Christ's identity, Christ's power, His standing before the Father, His motivations, His capacities to love. As Christ rose from the dead, you also rose from the dead. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians five fourteen through 16 For the love of Christ compels us, it controls our lives, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Christ died so that we might have his death, and he lives so that we might have his life, so that his love would control us, his love would constrain us to magnify him in all that we do. Christ, as Paul tells the Colossians, is your life. And if Christ is your life, then death is gain. Because when we die, we depart, as he says in verse 23, and we go to be with Christ, our life. In fact, Christ being your life is the only thing that makes death gain. If anything else is in the first part of that sentence, then death is a loss. If your life is your wealth, when you die, you lose your wealth. If your life is for fame or notoriety, when you die, you will be forgotten if your life is even in good things, if your life is in your family, when you die, you will be separated from them. But if Christ is your life, when you die, you will be with Christ, and that is gain. Now, death in and of itself is not gain. Death, considered by itself, Paul even tells us, is an enemy. We know that it brings grief, that it brings heartache and pain. All of us who have lost someone who is close to us. We know the emotional pain that comes with death. We know the, that death brings physical pain. We know that death separates us. Spiritually, death separates us from God. Physically, death separates us from those that we love. It, it separates husband and wife and brother and sister and friend and friend. Death is an enemy considered by itself. But the great power of Christ is that by his resurrection, he has taken the most fearsome blow of God's curse and transformed it into the very doorway into eternal life. The very doorway into Christ's presence is now death. When the believer dies, we depart and we are with him. Here in this life, Christ seems distant to us. But when we die, we will enter into his presence and Christ will be present with us. Here, right now in this life, we have to be content to walk by faith. Even the best of Christian living, even the most blessed Christian life, must walk by faith, but there we will have sight of the risen Christ. And John tells us, when we see Him, we will be like Him. That even the sight of Christ will transform us to be like Him. Here we're weighed down with all of our sins, and our love for God is feeble and weak, but when we are there, we will be beyond sin. We'll be beyond even being tempted to sin. What a glorious thought that is. And when we see him, we will be made holy and just like him, and the small and feeble love that we have for God now will be inflamed, and we will worship God unhindered. Here we have only the down payments of God's blessings, but there we will know experientially know the love which passes understanding. Here we have trials, and there we will have peace. Here we have labors, and there we will have rest. Here we have faith, but there we will have Christ. The very essence of human happiness is the enjoyment of God himself. And Christ at the right hand of the Father is an infinite and inexhaustible fountain of joy. And to have him is to have all. And when we depart and are with Christ, the joy that we have from beholding Him is eternal. It will never end. It will never stop. It will never diminish. When we depart, we will be with Christ, and we will have joy in His presence without end. Here Jesus is with us as we struggle on earth, present by His Spirit, but He's not visible And at death, even as we await the resurrection of our bodies, we will enjoy His presence in a more intimate way than we can imagine. What makes death gain is not the earthly miseries that it ends. Death is not gain to Paul because his life is difficult. Death is not gain because it gets rid of our miseries. Death is gain because it gives us Christ. Death is gain not only of the worst of experiences here. Death is gain for the Christian, for the best of experiences here. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, quote, See what little cause believers have to fear death when it brings such glorious benefits. Why should the saints fear their preferment? Is it not a blessed thing to see God and to love God. Why should the saints be afraid of their blessings? What hurt does it do but to clothe us with the robe of immortality? Has he any wrong done to him who has his sackcloth pulled off and a cloth of gold put upon him? Fear not dying, ye who cannot live, but by dying." Quote. For those of you who know Christ, who are looking to him, who are purified by faith in Him, I want to encourage you to spend time thinking about all the glorious benefits that you will have in Christ at your death. And this, as you take time daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, to meditate on these things, this will help sustain you in trial. Think about Paul's life here in prison with none of the comforts that we would normally have rejoicing, in the Lord always. If you want to know how to be sustained, how to go through trials with joy, you need to meditate on the, on the benefits that we have in Christ in this life now by faith, but what we will have with him experientially, personally when we die. It'll sustain you just like, just like the kid who is saving up for something with his allowance keeps a picture of it and looks at it often and encourages him. No, it's just a little bit more. It's just a little bit more. That's how Thinking about your benefits in Christ sustains you through the trials of life. When we depart, we will be with him. So it's no wonder that as he weighed those options, considering his own self, that dying the martyr's death was, for Paul, far better. He calls it far better in verse 23. But that was not his only consideration. Continuing to live in the flesh, he said, would result for fruit, with fruitful labor for me. He says in verse 22, what is this fruit that Paul seeks? What is his fruitful labor? Well, earlier in the letter, Paul prayed that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ in verse chapter 1, verse 11. And he rejoices in their generosity, not because he personally needs their gifts, but because he seeks the fruit of that increases to their credit in chapter 4, verse 17. And we all know the verses from Galatians, where he writes to the Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is after the righteous actions, the righteous affections. He's after a faith that works in love. This is the fruit that Paul is after. He wants to see this fruit that comes through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, in Christ's people. And so, if his legal appeal results in vindication and release, he'll return to Philippi and strengthen his friends' faith and participate in their gospel witness to their fellow citizens. He says his, his arrival would further their progress and joy in the faith. That's what Paul is after. He's after the progress and joy of faith for God's people. Both his life and death are defined by the fact that he belongs to Christ. And because Paul's union with Christ defines who he is, he can assess these alternative outcomes of his legal appeal, ongoing life, continued fruit, continued ministry, even at the cost of suffering or a martyr's death, not as competing evils, but as competing goods. As we think about our own lives, if if we know that Christ is our life, these are the things that we will value, these are the things that we will pray for, that we will work toward, fruit in the lives of our family, of our friends, of our church, of our nation. We want to see the righteous actions, the righteous affections by the Spirit of God growing in the people around us. If we love Christ with everything, we will love his people. We will love his church. And if we know that Christ is our life, even our death becomes gain for us. As he reasons through these things, Paul at least provisionally discerns which option would better enable him to glorify Christ at that time. He says at this time in his ministry, Paul concludes that it is more necessary for the Philippians that he remains in the flesh. Look at verses 24 through 26. He says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. He does expect to live, but it's not because of a revelation from on high. It's as he reasons through the options before the Lord. He, in this po- process of reflection, he believes that he will live and return to the Philippians, and, and he does. Paul would not always think this way. In a later imprisonment, he writes to Timothy saying, I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. Later, Paul would would sense that his mission was accomplished, and he would embrace that far better alternative to depart and be with Christ. But in the meantime... He will joyfully embrace ministry in this world for the sake of Christ's people, for further fruit, for furthering the gospel, even if it means intense suffering. And this is, this is the way that we should view our lives, that, that death to depart and be with Christ is gain. But if we are here, we should be willing and ready from now on to live for Him, to see Christ's kingdom advance. I want to conclude today by reading... Again, for you, the entire, the full text of the question and answer one from the Heidelberg Catechism, which says this. Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. So as you meditate on this question and answer this week, this year, may it help you to make Paul's affirmation the theme of your own life, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death, and his resurrection in our place for our sins. We thank you for the new life that you have given us in him. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would make us aware and faith and have faith in the great benefits that you have given us in him. We pray that you would make us willing and ready to live in such a way that he might be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death, and in his name, amen.